For hundreds of years, human beings have bent the natural world to suit our needs, asserting more and more control over the biosphere so that our civilization could grow and prosper. Now the world is waking up to the fact that incredible progress has serious and potentially grave consequences. Climate change and a host of interrelated problems threaten to upend the way we live. But the future is not without hope. My name is Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation. In this episode, we meet a thought leader with big ideas for social, technological and economic programs to fix the challenges of our era. He has the ear of heads of state and policymakers from the EU to China and beyond. His name is Jeremy Rifkin, a professor at the Wharton School, New York Times bestselling author and advisor to governments across the globe. He is one of the most influential thinkers of our time. In this new book, The Age of Resilience, Professor Rifkin outlines a vision of a radically better world lying within our grasp. He shared that vision with Marie-Laure Schalfaberger, head of ESG and stewardship for the Pictet Group. So welcome, Jeremy, to Found in Conversation. We're thrilled to have you here today to talk about your book, The Age of Resilience. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So every once in a while, you read a Zeitgeist book, um, one that reflects the spirit of an era. And that's really how I felt when I when I read The Age of Resilience. It's part new interpretation of history of civilization, but also offers a transformative vision of how, you know, we can thrive as a species in a changing world. Um, and it, it really, according to the book, looks at how we're leaving behind an age of progress, which was about essentially trying to dominate nature, right, at, at its expense and, and our own, and moving into a world which is an age of resilience, which is marked by adaptability and an understanding that we're actually part and parcel of nature. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more? Well, I think you've summarized it quite nicely. Thank you. Well, let me start with a little context. We all know that there's going to be more pandemics coming. It's intuitive. Uh, and the reason that's happening is the changes going on on this planet. You know, when my dad was born in 1908, 84% of this whole earth was still wild. No human development. Today, it's down to 24% and heading towards zero. And what this means is that our viruses are now climate migrants. They're hitching a ride on wild animals and getting closer and closer to human civilization. So there's going to be more pandemics. And then there's the whole issue of climate change, and they're related. The fact is that we've uh, spewed massive amounts of global warming gases, as you know, into the atmosphere in this fossil fuel-based industrial revolution of the last 200 years. And uh, those emissions, those molecules, are blocking the sun's heat from getting back off the planet. So what's happening is for every one degree Celsius that the temperature is going up on this planet from fossil fuel emissions, the atmosphere is actually sucking up 7% more precipitation from the ground. The heat is forcing that precipitation to evaporate quicker into the clouds. More concentrated precipitation in the clouds, wild, exponential, unpredictable water events. So we're getting something new called these atmospheric rivers in the winter, and they are spewing massive snowfalls onto the land. Southern California had 16 feet of snow. There's no snow in California. Then in the spring, we're getting the floods. 
And in the summer, we're getting the droughts and the heat waves and the wildfires. And in the fall, we're getting the hurricanes and typhoons. It's the planet's hydrosphere, and that's the mover. This is the watery planet. It's rebelling. It's rewilding. And what our scientists are telling us, and everyone should hear this, we're now in the sixth extinction event of life on the planet. It doesn't even make the headlines. It's not even a prime story. The problem is this. It isn't just about fossil fuels. That's what I want to be clear. It's a whole set of assumptions that we have taken with us all the way back to the beginning of hydraulic civilizations, when we began to actually try to sequester the water of the planet. Let me explain that for a minute. Think about the hubris. For 250,000 years, we adapted to nature like every other species, including adapting to the waters, all right, because you have to have waters to live. About 10,000 years ago, the last ice age receded. So we quit that nomadic kind of life and we settled down to agriculture, pastoralization. Then we decided instead of adapting to the waters of the water planet, we're going to make the waters adapt to us, canals and dams and dikes and all of these things all the way up to the 21st century where we now have hydropower electric dams and we have sequestered water all over the world. But think of the hubris that we thought we could actually sequester the actual hydrosphere of this earth to suit the exclusive needs of one species. Now it's rebelling. And what this means is we don't have a playbook. Because if you go back to the very first pseudo-historical record, the book of Genesis, right there in the beginning of the Garden of Eden, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, do not eat that apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or I will kick you out of the garden. They violated his mandate. He threw them out of the garden. But he said to Adam, I'm going to give you something because you're going to have to work by your toil now, no paradise. I'm going to let you and all your heirs have dominion over all life on this planet. You shall be the masters of life. The Eastern religions had a very different idea that we harmonize with nature, although they strayed as well. So that basic mandate in all of its various renditions, all the way up to the age of progress, is what's taken us to an extinction event. And here's what it is. We human beings, uh, in terms of our, our relationship to the planet, it's our way we have come to understand our relationship to nature. It's how we've organized governance. It's how we've administered economies. It's how we've educated our kids. It's our approach to selfhood. All of these various mandates come out of this idea that we will have dominion, that we are uh, the most important species. And that's taken us to an extinction event. And it's the same playbook of ideas that's used by the OECD, the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, and everyone else to try to solve the crisis that these sets of assumptions have given us. I know you smile, it's kind of common sense. Uh, and therefore, we really need to rethink the playbook. And I think that's the essential bottom line for this story. I'd like to come back to, to what you said at the very beginning. It struck me when you said, you know, viruses are climate migrants, right? Um, and we don't tend to talk about that in, in such a way. And, and maybe to take a step back to talk about the COVID pandemic, which was a game changer, I, I think, and, and notably when it comes to the limits of a system that was focused on hyper-efficiency. You know, it didn't just expose cracks in our global supply chains, but it also shed light on and deepened existing inequalities. I think it's a, it's a normal assumption around the world that efficiency is just the way of nature. Doesn't every species, don't they all have to be more efficient? No, there's no such thing as efficiency in nature. That is a human term. 
for 95% of the time, our species have been on planet, and as far as we know, we're the youngest uh, mammalian species. We adapted temporally to nature. The, our temporal value was adaptivity, not efficiency, because every species, including our own, we have myriad biological clocks. Efficiency really emerged uh, in the late medieval era with the early agricultural industrial revolution, then factory uh, production. Here's what efficiency is. Efficiency is extracting greater volumes of the Earth's primary spheres that maintain life. That's the hydrosphere, the waters, the, atmos the atmosphere, the oxygen, the lithosphere, the soil, the plants, the animals. Extracting greater volumes of those four spheres that animate life at higher speeds and shorter time intervals to optimize the opulence of one species, our own. The result, our little species is less than 1% of the biomass of the Earth. And our little species is currently using 24% of the net primary production of photosynthesis, 44% in 25 years from now, nothing less for anybody else. What I think the young people are getting at, what I think intuitively, when I saw these uh, Friday for Future demonstrations, millions of young people going out on the streets many, many times, 141 countries, peacefully saying we have a climate emergency, right? It didn't dawn on me. I mean, we've been protesting all through history. Our species is a protesting species for sure. This one was different. I met three of the Gen Zs in Milan, and then it hit me. Really, this isn't like any other demonstrations in history. This is the first time an entire cohort of millennial and Gen Zs across the whole planet have come out to demonstrate as a species. They actually see themselves as a species that's endangered. You talk about this, right? So us as a, as a species, um, and actually we're also an ecosystem, right? On, onto ourselves and, and the science backs this up, right? This is not just some philosophical musing on, on the space of human, you know, humanity within nature. The, 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 there's hard science now to back up that, you know, we're, we're, we almost have more alien in ourselves than, um, than, than human, right? And uh, I'd love for you to elaborate on that because I do think this is a really powerful part of the book. Well, thank you, because I, I actually, that's my favorite section as well. So I'm in my office now in Bethesda, Maryland, and out my window is the National Institutes of Health. It's a few blocks away, right out my window. So the National Institutes of Health have created a new project. This is the greatest scientific uh, body in the world. It's called the Human Microbiome Project. It's a revolution. And what I'm about to share is going to change everybody's ideas about everything. So this project, what they are saying to us, our scientific establishment, the biologists, the chemists, the physicists, they're saying a human being is actually an ecosystem. This is not a metaphor. Every human being is actually an ecosystem. We are a medium, a semi-permeable membrane, and we are taking in elements from the hydrosphere, the waters, the lithosphere, uh, the, the land, the soil, uh, the atmosphere, the oxygen, the biosphere into our body every day. And those molecules don't disappear. So when we're taking in, for example, phosphorus from my teeth, that came from a mountain, okay? The mountain was degraded by the waters. Then all those elements in the mountains became part of the sediment and made up the soil. Then the plants took those elements up into the plants and then to the animals, and then the elements show up on our teeth. Then the phosphorus goes somewhere else after we're gone. 
the water molecules in our body go somewhere else. The water never disappears on the planet. It's been here since we began. It'll be here until we end. What they're saying here is even more profound, and you touched on it. We are not alone in our body. There are millions and millions of other creatures in our body that we're just beginning to understand. It's a huge ecosystem, this microbiome. There's the proteus, the archaea, the fungi, the bacteria, the viruses. It's endless. This is, it's so profound also because it just anchors us so much in the natural world where we're part of it, we're part of the stock and flow. It also has enormous implications for how we feed ourselves, for the air that we breathe, as you said, the water that we put in our body. Um, and I'd like maybe to, to touch upon, upon that because part of this transition is, is actually about transitioning all of the sectors in the economy, right? The energy that goes into our economy, but the energy that goes into our bodies, our food systems. And I think you talk about this um, also extensively. That's a big order. And I would say this, I think it's pretty critical. Um, there's something called the water energy food nexus, which is well known uh, among um, uh, environmental scientists and ecologists. And now as some of the cutting edge people in the in, in industry, especially are beginning to understand this, they all connect. You need water to move energy. You need energy to move water. And you need both in order to be able to grow the crops. The problem is with global warming, the hydrosphere is shifting in ways that we have not seen in 10,000 years. Let me go back to infrastructure for a moment because that's pretty critical. When we began this conversation, back around 22,001, uh, Romano Prati came to the US to, to have a visit with me. He was uh, president of the European Commission at that time twice uh, prime minister of Italy. Uh, he sat me down in the in the, M the EU embassy. I knew I was in trouble because he held my hand for one hour. Literally, wouldn't take me. So he said, Jeremy, you spent the last 25, 30 years in the US trying to move this forward, not moving quick enough. Come to Europe for the next 20, 25 years. We're going to lead the world into a post-carbon era and a completely new frame of reference for how we live on the earth. I took him up on it, got a lot of frequent flyer miles over the last 20 years. But we asked a question early on, which is interesting. I said, look, let's, let's look at what we need to do anthropologically. And when we look back at history, we found that there's been seven or eight really paradigmic changes in our economic infrastructures, and they all shared a common denominator. That's not in the textbooks. And that is at a moment of time, and it's serendipitous usually, four different technologies start to emerge, serendipitous, and they begin to create a new infrastructure that fundamentally transforms the way a civilization communicates, empowers, and moves economic activity. What are the components? Number one, new communication revolutions. Number two, new energy regimes. Number three, new modes of mobility and logistics. Number four, new ways of handling water. When those come together, it allows large numbers of people in these new infrastructures to create a social organism with differentiated skills to organize their economic life, their governance, and everything else. Where do we go? When Angela Merkel came into power, uh, she asked me to come to Berlin the first couple of weeks to help her figure out how do we grow the German economy during her watch. On that first day, we discussed the Third Industrial Revolution, which we had already, as you know, been mentoring we had passed the 2020-20 formula in Europe in 2007. We were mentoring. And here's what it is. And everyone under 40 will grasp this because they're the ones doing it, all right? Number one, the internet. Communication, instant. Four and a half billion people with a cell phone in their hand, and that little smartphone has more computing power 
and sent our astronauts to the moon in the 1960s, late 60s. Now that communication internet is converging with an energy internet. We now have literally millions and millions of homes, thousands of offices, industrial sites, communities, agricultural fields that are generating their own solar and wind. Within 20 years, it'll be hundreds of millions. And within 25 years, um, at least a few billion people generating their own solar and wind where they work, where they live. What energy they're not using at any moment, they're setting up on an energy internet using big data and analytics to share electricity across time zones and in the next 20 years under the ocean and in the next 30 years across the planet, a global energy internet. Why? The sun and the wind are everywhere, but at different times. So if it's nice and sunny in America, get it and then send it to the nighttime in Europe or Asia. If it's wind in Asia, get it at night and send it to a sun zone. It forces sharing and it's totally distributed. No central power can ever control hundreds of millions and billions of locally generated solar and wind. Those two internets, all both using big data and analytics to manage them, are now converging with a third internet, mobility and logistics, electric and fuel cell transport, powered by solar and wind from the energy internet, right? And increasingly semi-autonomous, managed by the same big data and analytics and algorithms we use for communication and energy. All three internets come together with the fourth internet, that's the new one just starting here in America, the first government studies, it's called the water intranet. We're realizing that the problem is not the water, but it's when you need it, all right? So what we're doing is we're now introducing uh, capturing devices to harvest water when it rains with our cisterns and with uh, bioscrelion, with sponge cities. We're, we're, we're capturing that water, putting it in cisterns underneath where we live, where we work, in, under our streets, and then the water internet goes with the energy internet and the electricity allows us to move that water when we need it, where we need it, distribute it across land masses. No more big, huge dams and big artificial reservoirs because the rivers are drying up. So capture the rain and use it. This changes the building stock as well, from urban to suburban, and now it's nodes. Every building now is an open node. It's um, generating sun, you know, where we can, small vertical wind. Every building is a uh, battery and a fuel cell to store the energy. Every building is going to have an electric vehicle that can send power back to the grid when it needs it. Every building has edge data centers. This is something people don't know, but we know in industry. We are generating so much data that if you have an autonomous vehicle or semi-autonomous vehicle about to crash and you send that data to a remote centralized data center, it seems short, but it's too long. The car crashes. The latency factor says there's so much data that we have to move toward edge data centers. And there are now thousands, hundreds of thousands, there'll be millions. So every home, office, factory, neighborhood, edge data centers that can act together in fluid platforms to actually manage uh, the data going on within their locality, and then they can localize across their mentality. This is a democratization of economic life. And it favors high-tech SMEs in cooperatives, blockchain in fluid platforms all over the world. And everything I'm saying to you, and it's in the book, is actually happening. Some of it's scaling, some of it is not. But the technology and the market are there. It's, it's clearly the cheapest way to go. So it's a pretty big change. Super interesting, but it also begs the question of the pace of change, right? Because I totally agree that we're going in this direction of 
decentralization and, and much more autonomy and local autonomy. But if I give you an anecdote, so we, we recently built a house, um, so new build, solar panels on the roof. And when I talked to the developer about putting in a rain capturing, you know, um, system to be able to water the yard and to potentially use also in to clean, etc. He was like, oh, but you don't need to put that in in Switzerland. You have plenty of water. And uh, it's cheaper to just turn on the tap. And I, I said, today. <laughs> um, but we lost 6% of our glaciers last year because of climate change, which is an essential part of our energy. Like you, You've made those connections before. And so, you know, not everyone is asking these questions. And even when they're asking questions, they're having to push through people saying, yo, but you don't actually need this. It's cheaper to buy the fuel or it's cheaper to stay on, you know, to, to, to get water from the tap. And I guess my question is, so if we look at even the question of fossil fuels, right, which is something that is also really interesting for us as a financial institution, because we're thinking about the pace of transition out of coal, oil and gas. We know this transition will take a certain amount of time. How much time do you think this this is likely to take? Um, what, you know, is the role of maybe transition fuels in all of this? Um, and what can we do to accelerate the pace of change? Because as you said several times, or we don't have the time. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a question that always comes up after a talk, right? They come up afterwards and say, can, do we have enough time? Or is time run out? Is the clock run out on this? There's there's two two or three parts of this. One is that uh, in order to move this quickly, it has to be done at a regional level. Nation states can set up codes, regulations, standards, and permitting, which they have to do. But the local regions have to then take this third industrial revolution infrastructure, which takes us from the age of progress to the age of resilience, and they have to own it. I'll give you an example. The 10 years we were in uh, Halte de France, and that's the home of both Macron and Marie Le Pen, okay? But it's the industrial region of France. And first there was a socialist head of the region. And then after an election, it was a Republican. They both kept it on because they realized this is the future. It's not about right and left. It's about a new narrative for a new way to organize a relationship to the planet we're in. But when they originally came to me, the head of the region, he said, will you do a plan for us? I said, no, we will not. He said, why? Because it'll sit on a shelf, there'll be a pilot project and that'll be it with a press release. Yeah. I said, however, if you want to go back to the entire region and line up every chamber of commerce, all the business associations, every university and high school, all your civil society organization, all of them to do this plan and come back to me, we will share our experience with you and you will do the plan. The basic architecture there, but you have to customize it or it won't work. They usually never come back. So I thought I'll never hear from this guy again. <laughs> Well, this guy is pretty tenacious. He came back several months later. He lined up the whole region across all political party lines. So we were stuck. So we spent 10 years with them, and they mobilized thousands and thousands of people. They took 3,000 businesses in the Chamber of Commerce and reoriented them from the second to the third Industrial Revolution infrastructure. They, 26 universities came together to move their universities into interdisciplinary learning and clinical teaching in the ecosystems. 250 high schools. Then they took the whole civil society in, together and reorganized it. Thousands. They've created thousands of jobs, massive new businesses, tech parks. Was this something unusual? No. They just said, time is up. Instead of relying on someone up there to help us, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and do it. That's what makes the success. We can help. We can share 
successes and failures. We can lay out broad framework, but each region will be customized. And this gets to another point. We're going to have to have a new extension of governance. That's what we've seen in these regions around the world we've done. We're not giving up nation states anytime soon, at least. But there's going to be some changes. We're not giving up regions and municipalities, but we have to extend now governance to something called bio-regional governance. Climate disasters do not honor political boundaries. They don't stop at the political boundary. Climate disasters, the floods, the droughts, the wildfires, the atmospheric rivers, they affect ecosystems. We have to move to bioregional governance so that across political lines, there can be a common uh, way to prepare, rescue, restore, and create a re-age of resilience. And that's the only way it's going to work. This is so interesting and the, the importance also of a, of a new generation, right? I think when I started in finance 15 years ago, I was one of very few that was really interested in connecting environmental and social concerns to kind of financial capital and seeing how we could direct it differently. And I was in an organization that was already very advanced in this topic, having a number of, of products in this space. But what I see is the next generation, our graduates, right? The, the, the whole people, as you, you said, under 40, I would say it's even more intense with the under 30. They are pushing for purpose-driven investing. They are pushing for the systematic integration of environmental and social criteria to reconnect finance to real-world outcomes and to a better understanding also of the very real risks that come with investing. You mentioned, you know, uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, 80% of the buildings in Europe are going to be here in 2050. How are we going to retrofit those? How are we going to make them, as you said, you know, fit for the future where we have more and more, you know, uh, systemic shocks and, and environmental shocks and, and a changing climate and, as you said, like a deregulation of our hydrosphere. Um, and these guys are asking questions and they're pushing for change. And in fact, many of them are seeding change within the asset classes where you actually have leaders that are receptive to this. And as you said, this is how change kind of takes hold bottom up. And, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how our financial system will be reshaped in the age of resilience. I just uh, had an interesting uh, talk. I uh, was invited to, uh, 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 with an international banking association to do a lecture three weeks ago on this question of how do we move the financial community forward on this. We had a lot of banking leaders from around the world. Here's what's interesting. In 2019, the amortized cost, the levelized cost of solar and wind dipped below all the other energies way below nuclear, way below coal, way below oil, and way below natural gas. So what's happened is solar and wind are on exponential curve, just like computer chips. That's happened with solar and wind. When I first started in the 1970s, one fixed solar watt was 76 bucks. It's 35 cents as I speak to you today, all right? But the marginal cost is near zero. The sun and the wind have never sent an invoice. There is no bill. To extract coal, oil, uranium, natural gas, extremely expensive to explore it, extract it, and purify it. So the market is there. The technology is there. And the reason we know this is happening is trillions of dollars have flooded out of the fossil fuel complex in the last few years. Why? They're all stranded assets. All of them. They'll never amortize out the exploration rights that the fossil fuel industry has. They take 30 years. They'll never amortize out the uh, the pipelines. They'll never amortize out the new 
uh, gas-fired power plants they're putting in for 30 years. They'll never amortize out the petrochemical factories that will not amortize out. Literally, it's stranded. So upwards of $11 trillion have either gotten out or said we are getting out. That's a huge exit of the biggest bubble in economic history. And the problem is this. There's no scale projects except the London sewer system or a few things. Here's the issue. If any of us were to travel to a mayor of the 12,000 cities that have signed up for their climate accords, that mayor will show you his or her 10 lead buildings, five electric buses, and bike paths, and think, wow, this is great. They're all pilots. So you have all this money ready to scale. What's stopping it is political will. The plan we did for uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, much of it went into the Build Back Better infrastructure plan. <clears throat> Our global team, construction, engineering, real estate, agriculture, all the majors, we came up with a $17 trillion 20-year plan for total transformation, financed primarily by private sector, pension, insurance industries, et cetera, uh, regionally customized across the country. Some of it got into the plan enough to get started, not as much as we wanted. And we said 20 years. The market is there. The technology is there. Not the whole infrastructure, but we can get out a sophomoric infrastructure that's good enough to get us towards zero emission in 20, and we can mature it in another 20. The only thing that's stopping us is political will. And uh, I think we just have to ensure that a younger generation in civil society, the business community, and local governance gets to this task. And everything I'm saying to you is not rocket science, it's common sense, and it's all there. None of this is theoretical, none of this is academic. It's an opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity, and I think that's something, I mean, you've just articulated, I think, the narrative that we need to have going forward, right? That that actually these transitions are exponential and happen fast, right? 20, 30 years, which is good news because that's what we have, right? Um, we have until kind of 2050 to get these things done. And a lot of the stuff that we need to do needs to happen within the next decade. But what you show is that, you know, these changes happen also at the regional level. They're happening right now in kind of more pilot phase, but they're also happening at the regional government level. Last week, the European government organized a Beyond Growth Conference where a lot of these things were were discussed, right? I mean, it was like reading your book. And this is being discussed at the highest political level in Europe. Um, you mentioned the Chinese, you know, ecological society, you know, civilization um, plan as well, which you've been involved with. Our time together is unfortunately drawing to a close. It's It's been such an interesting conversation. I wanted to ask you one more thing because exactly, is there anything you want to say? Because you've done a wonderful call to action to younger people. You've done a call to action to industry leaders. We need the political will. We need the financial capital. Um, we need people behind this. When when I first introduced Third Industrial Revolution, it was in the first page, I think, of The End of Work, the book The End of Work in 1995. We had no idea uh, that it would metamorphose to where it is today. What happened is this infrastructure has taken on its own will. In other words, it's morphing in ways that we did not anticipate. First, it was just the energy and the energy internet, and then we added the and the and the and the information internet. Then we said, "Oh no, it's a mobility internet." Then we said, "Wait a minute, it's the water internet." Wait a minute, it's the Internet of Things. What happened is this is the last of the industrial revolutions, the third industrial revolution. But what we began to see, and it's kind of amusing, is the infrastructure took on its own ways. And that is by 2040, 
it's going to morph from an industrial revolution to the first infrastructure of the age of resilience. And so here's the list of the things we didn't see. Are you ready? That now is happening, not because of us, but because the infrastructure started to move. A younger generation is pivoting from growth to flourishing. It's not non-growth. There's no such thing as growth in nature. Growth, nature either flourishes or it doesn't. All right. We're seeing a shift from finance capital to ecological capital. We're realizing that photosynthesis, net primary production, is the generator of wealth. Everything else is secondary. We're moving from GDP, as you know, to quality of life indicators. It's not just how much. It's where is that money going? Quality of life or just uh, more production? We're moving from ownership to access, from markets to networks. We are moving from linear to cybernetic processes. That's a done deal. We're moving from vertically integration economies of scale to laterally integrated economies of scale. We're moving from global corporations. They'll still be here, some of them, but we're going to really see high-tech, agile SMEs in cooperatives in a globalized world. We're moving from intellectual property rights. They'll still be here, but the young people are doing open source sharing of knowledge. They realize it's not a zero-sum game knowledge. It's the network effect. The more in the network, everybody benefits from the network. We're seeing a shift from globalization to globalization, geopolitics to biosphere politics. Our real politics is the 19 kilometers of the biosphere we live in. We're, we're seeing a somewhat of a extension of nation-state sovereignty to bioregional governance and citizens' assemblies. Everything here will be familiar to some of the people watching what we have said today to two of us. Now, if you put it together, that's a revolution, social, economic, cultural, educational. And it isn't something I came up with. It's something that all around the world, two generations have come up with. But now we have to put the story together instead of piecemealing it. Because when we piecemeal it, everybody feels that there's no hope. It's too small. We can't do anything. Yeah, you can. Of how to France could do it, all the people living there in 10 years, every region of the world can do it. Thank you so much, uh, Jeremy, for being with us, for connecting all these dots, giving us hope. Um, it was lovely having you on Found in Conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This episode of Found in Conversation starred Jeremy Rifkin and was presented by Marie-Laure Schaffelberger. The show is a collaboration between Pictet, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and How to Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.